Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number 13. John 13. In the next five chapters of John's Gospel, we're walked through what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus will intimately teach His disciples about service. He'll teach them about love. He'll teach them about the Holy Spirit, about heaven, about our union with Christ, and about prayer. The first few words of our passage that Jeremy read this morning reveal to us that the shadow of the cross from Golgotha is looming large already. It's growing longer and darker darker as we stand at this moment the evening before the crucifixion of our Lord. You you can look at this text and, and think of yourself as inching toward the cross. A couple of notes to help us frame our minds around what's going on in the text before we get to some teaching and application. Look with me at verse... One on the screen and in your Bibles. Now before the feast of the Passover, so we know when it's happening. And then we get a little insight into the mind of Christ. Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. We see here a little bit about the mind of our Savior in this moment. It's an incredible insight that we're given here. He he knows that His time has come. He knows that He is about to leave the world that He was sent on mission to. He knows He's about to be with the Father in heaven on the throne. He had loved well. He had loved His disciples well. And He loved them and knew that they were staying on earth. He would love them until the end. In verse 3, which is not on the screen, we get a little insight that says he knows that the Father has already given him all things and that the Father is in complete control and that he has all authority. Jesus is fully cognizant of his role as truly God and truly man in this moment. And yet there he is seated with his disciples. Verse 2, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we see the mind of Christ. Now the scene is set before us. He's there with all the disciples. It's supper time, what will become known as the Last Supper. That would have been a very strange invitation if he would have told them that on the front end. I'd like to invite you to the Last Supper. But that's not what happened. They're there to enjoy this. Although he's been dropping... Not even clues. He's been trying to tell them clearly, but we see Thomas later on going, where are you going? What are you talking about? We miss so much sometimes of what Jesus clearly reveals. They've gathered for the Passover meal together. The devil has already put it into the heart of Judas to betray our precious Lord and Savior. And Jesus does something that has filled the volumes of Christian leadership books for the ages. The ones worth reading that point to what it looks like to serve as a leader, that is. Jesus gets up and and does this act of incredible humility and gives us an example of how we're to serve one another. It's just remarkable. There are two major drivers this morning, if you want to write some things down. Hint, 
take notes as your pastor preaches this morning. The first thing I would write down is Jesus serves humbly. Jesus, the King of glory, serves humbly. It's a remarkable thing. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 in your Bibles. John 13, verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, ties it around his waist. Verse 5. Then he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. One of my earliest working titles for this sermon uh, please extend mercy in a judgment-free zone here this morning, was towel service. <laughs> you know, it's one of those kind of clever things. You think, oh, I kind of came up with something there. And the more I thought about that, I went, ugh, and I didn't tell Lindsay in time before she sent out the communication, so you got a heads up that I was preaching on towel service. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to travel any right after the pandemic. Um, or really the pandemic, when I say that, I mean twofold. There was, of course, the pandemic, and then there was the shutting down of everything. And as things began to open back up, hotels had adjusted the level of service they were, they were providing, yet they had not adjusted the price uh, that they were providing less service for. Um, there were signs all around the hotel lobbies that would say, we've adjusted our services. And in fact, right by the the manager, there was a big one usually that said, if you need towel service, please call the front desk. There were very little housekeeping staff visible in hotels in those early days. I had a few trips to go and, and preach in some regions of the country and yet you, nobody came and cleaned your room and nobody brought you towels. If you needed some, you would call down to the front desk and it was likely, you know Bob, the manager would walk up with a handful of towels and this deer caught in a head like looks like he had never carried towels before in his life and he'd come to you don't go like uh, did you need towels is this enough are these towels is this a hotel I don't know do you know anybody that wants to do housekeeping would you like a job sir but that kind of towel service is really about us getting something we need our, our idea of towel service today and, and and it's because of the hospitality culture is that we make a request and somebody beckons or jumps to our beckoning call that's a very similar view to the way people think about religion every action that many take is on the basis of their personal benefit what's in it for me what can i get you to do for me i'm happy to make others jump through unnecessary hoops if it benefits me even if it's something I don't need. This kind of towel service has me as the focus, but the towel service that I was trying to point to is something of a whole different kind and nature. Jesus engages here in something completely different. In this kind of towel service, I'm not the focus. I'm the one serving. He gets up from a seated position. He's in a position of being served, and he willingly changes gears. He lays aside his garments that would identify him as among the guests in that moment and, and takes on the appearance of a servant. Now let me just make a side note here. While that sounds good and looks good and we know the rest of the story, there are a lot of people who dress the part because of the optics. Right? Those politicians that show up one time a year with a shovel in their hand to do one thing, wait for the cameras. And then they, you ready now? Like that shovel a piece of dirt or something and then hand the shovel back and they're gone till the next election cycle. We don't have to just throw politicians under the bus. There are plenty 
who just like the optics of being considered a servant. But Jesus does something even different. He takes the towel, ties it around his waist, and identifies himself not just as a servant, but with the lowest station of servants in the house. You couldn't get any lower than the servants that had foot washing duty. Not only will he identify with the lowest station, he will perform the lowest, most menial task that will be performed at that moment and in that supper. Let me say clear to you, Jesus is so much more than an example to us, but he is demonstrating something for us that is remarkable. It takes me back to his teaching that Mark captured in Mark chapter number 10 when he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers among the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you for whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus humbly serves. My mind went to Philippians 2 as I thought about Paul capturing this humility of our great high king and priest. And if you'll allow me, I want you to take in your Bibles, if you've got them with you, turn over to Philippians 2 for just a few moments. It's really, I'll let the text do the talking for this point. In Philippians 2, I want to touch a passage, but I want to work at it backwards. I want to start, in, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, but I want to start in verses 9 through 11. Let me start at the end and work my way back. Who is this Jesus that we're speaking of? Well, it's God's Son, the one that God highly exalted and gave Him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our Savior. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at Jesus. He's highly exalted. Nobody is above Him. Nobody is like Him. Every knee will bow to this King one day. Every tongue will confess that He is King one day. Everything on the earth, in the earth, under the earth, around the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything alive one day will glorify God in heaven. So what's the trigger for this from heaven's perspective? What got us into verses 9 and 11? Was it His royal robes? No. Was it that He had a crown that put the crown jewels of England to shame? No. Was it the armies that He commanded while He was here on earth? No. Was it His earthly riches? No. Look at verses 6-8. through eight. The Bible says, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus, the King of glory, the apple of heaven's eye, willingly lays down His life. He empties Himself of anything that He was entitled to. He, being able to take any form that He could have taken. Process that for just a moment. Parents, I don't know what kind of games you play around your kitchen tables or dining room tables with your kids, but every once in a while, we say, what kind of animal? Would you like to be? 
what kind of bird would you like to be? I was stumped when Shepard asked me not too long ago what kind of fish I would like to be. I, all I could think about was a delicious one. That probably was not what he had in mind. What kind of thing would you like to be of all of the things that the King of Glory informs that he could take on? He chose to take the form of a servant. Christ became a man. Now we know that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative order. However, lest we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, God reveals in Genesis that you and I were created from the dust of the earth. He was found in human form on purpose for God's grand purpose. He was obedient. He humbled Himself to death for the purpose of the Father, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of everybody else. Now, as we work backwards in that and pick up the first couple of verses, look at the charge. So, this is King Jesus who has humbled Himself. And now verses 1 through 5 read, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind he had. Because of who Christ is. Because of the encouragement of Jesus Christ. Be an encourager. Because of the comfort from Jesus Christ. Be a comforter. Because of the love from Jesus Christ. Be a lover. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, be a giver. Because of the affection for you and your affection for Him, be affectionate to those around you. Because of His sympathy for you and the world around you, have the same mind as Christ had. Don't be self-absorbed, self-centered, self-obsessed, self-worshipping people. Don't be conceited, prideful, arrogant. Be humble when you look at others. Count them as more significant than you count yourselves. Look out for their interests. This is how Jesus lived and loved and served among us. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, the King of glory, putting a towel around His waist to get as low as He can get in that moment because love provokes action. Two dimensions to his act I'd mentioned to you this morning underneath that first point I gave you. Number one, no one is above serving. You're not good enough to refuse humble service. If Jesus, the King of glory, could get low, what right do we ever have to refuse to serve? If our King can humbly serve others, we should too. When we make excuses as to why we can't do this or that, we need to be careful. Is it a legitimate reason that we're being hindered from serving or, or are we trying to soothe our consciences because we think that that act is beneath us? We're not above serving. There's nothing beneath us. When you said yes to Jesus, the subtext of Him welcoming you into the family of God was, you're about to get low and stay there. 
No one is above serving. Secondly, no one is below being served. John repeatedly reminds us in this chapter that there's one particular person around this table that if you and I were writing this not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't think we would have written it the same way. John keeps reminding us in this chapter, Judas is there. And Jesus washed 12 sets of feet that day. Judas is present He's already begun. The seed has been planted for the scheme against our Lord, and yet Jesus kneels to wash His feet. He stoops down and washes the caked-off dirt and grime and filth of this world off the feet of each disciple and Judas. Is anybody going to betray you worse than Judas betrayed Jesus? No. Not even in the realm of possibility. I'm not saying you won't be betrayed. But if Jesus can stoop to serve those among you, what a Savior, what a lover, what a leader, what a servant, what a teacher. Because not only does he humble himself, then he does something that he's prone to do. Second thing to write down this morning, he enables us to serve like him. It would be awesome if Jesus just lived his life in such a way and we could go like, yes, let me just sign the card, agree with all that, and just say, Jesus paid it all and did it all so I don't have to do nothing, right? Well, you don't do anything for your salvation, but he calls us to a life of humility and service. And he's enabled us and called us to serve as he did. Follow me, he says, and I'll make you into something new. Imagine the uncomfortable quiet as the Dumbstruck disciples watch their rabbi take on the form of a servant and hear that water splashing in that bowl. I imagine, just my imagination, that all you heard was the water splashing the bowl and Jesus inhaling and exhaling because everybody else was going. Until Peter opened his mouth, which he's prone to do. Even as Jeremy was reading the text this morning, I was going, oh, Peter. Come on, buddy. He comes to Simon Peter. Go back to John 13. Look at the rest of this passage. This is the last point this morning. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will. Peter says to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. Well, Simon Peter backs up just as quick as he went in forward, right? He's reversing full throttle and says, Well, Lord, uh, just pour it all over me. Wash everything. Wash my clothes. Wash my house. Wash everything. Wash my hand, my feet, everything. Jesus says, That's not what this is. This isn't baptism. That's not what's going on here, Peter. This isn't some kind of ceremonial thing. I'm just demonstrating an act of service. That nobody's above serving and nobody's below being served. You've got to let me do this. Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus is ministering to Peter. The disciple, I find it ironic, the disciple who is most known for opening his mouth and inserting his foot is having his foot washed by Jesus. So it'll be clean for the next time, I guess. 
As this scene unfolds, Jesus is pointing his disciples and us to a greater, more powerful act of service. Jesus is demonstrating what he had taught them. He has not come to be served, but to serve. It's one thing for me to get up Sunday after Sunday and say things. It's another thing to live them. Early on in my training as a preacher of the gospel, one of my mentors said to me, you ought to live what you preach, but the goal of the man of God is to be able to preach what he lives. In just a few hours, Jesus will humble himself to death as he will take upon the sins of the whole world so that whosoever will believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, Jesus will stand in the gap for your grime and for your filth and for your wretchedness and bear the wrath of God poured out on him on the cross, die a criminal's death, be buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day raised to life to say, come follow me so you can get low and I can be glorified through you. When he says to Peter that they would understand afterward, he didn't mean as soon as they ate supper. He meant once the resurrection happened. He had come to be a servant for them. He had come to die so that they might live. You and I have to die to self so that others might see the life of Christ in us. It's not a reach. Verse 12, and when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? I think he's asking us the same question this morning. I got to tell you, though, I love when Jesus asks a question in the Bible and then answers it because he doesn't do that a whole lot. One of our good friends, Gary Cobb, whom you know, he's preached here multiple times. Gary says, everybody told me when I got saved, what would Jesus do? He said, the problem was every time I looked, he did something different than I thought he should. He was going the exact opposite of what my natural thinking was. I like when he answers the question. Verse 13, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And if I then, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Nobody is above serving. Nobody is below being served. Humble yourself to death to self. Dear brother, dear sister, Jesus said it. He did it. And then he told us to do it. Luke 11, Jesus said, Blessed are those rather who hear the word of God and keep it. James shakes us in our lethargy and says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Dear friend this morning, do you understand what it means to serve like Jesus? It means to get low. Years ago, when I had an office big enough to have a coffee table in it, <clears throat> um, it was a small coffee table, a beautiful one though, I had a gift put, in, uh, put, on that put on that little table from my wife. It was a small, we ordered this book not knowing what size it was. It was beautiful, leather-bound, little red book, 
And when it arrived, it was the size of one of those Gideon New Testaments. I thought I was getting like an adult-sized book. Apparently, I ordered the child's version. No jokes, please. And um, it was the collected writings of Samuel um, Logan Bringle. These were notes that he had made in the margins of his Bible and statements from letters that he had written to other men. And it just meant so much to me. You see, one of my early mentors in ministry and leadership really took a lot from Bringle's life, and so some of that was infused to me, and let me share with you why, who he is. In 1878, when William Booth's Salvation Army had just been named the Salvation Army, and people found out about the cause, men from all over began signing up and wanting to enlist. I mean, it was very much a military parallel, and they began to enlist, and one man who had once dreamed of being bishop uh, and actually was pastoring a very prominent church on the East Coast that God seemed to be blessing and growing and, I mean, standing room only and people were being saved on a regular basis. A Methodist minister named Samuel Logan Bringle crossed the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. Booth got word that he was coming and uh, Booth told him to go back home when he showed up. He said, go back home to your church and serve there. He said, pastoring of that sort is not what the Salvation Army needs. You're you're doing a fine work there. Go back and do that. Well, that discouraged Bringle for a minute, and then he became more resolute. There was some back and forth with Bringle and Booth and... Booth, in his words, grudgingly and reluctantly allowed Bringle to serve in the Salvation Army. Hmm. Booth said to Bringle, "Um, your sort of ministry won't work here. Here's your first assignment. You will clean the boots of the trainees in the Salvation Army. Clean the boots? Nights after night after night, Bringle would be down there scrubbing the dirt off of these boots, questioning God about his calling, about his relationship with God, about if he could discern God's will in his life anymore. And then Bringle came to a point where he said, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to do this? As he said that, The Holy Spirit, I believe, took him to John 13, as he recalls it. said, all I could picture was the King of glory stooped low to wash the grime off the disciples' feet. Then he uttered this famous prayer, Lord, you washed their feet. I will black their boots, and it will be enough. Jesus served humbly. He calls and empowers us to serve humbly, and it all comes from a place of love. Let me summarize the passage this morning, borrowing heavily on Matt Carter's summary, who did just a masterful job of it. Jesus does not call us to a life of leisure, but of labor. He doesn't call us to follow him down paths sprinkled with gumdrops and lollipops, but down dirt-covered, sweat-stained roads Paths that often stink, that are not simple, that are not clean, and certainly not neat. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's worth it. 
God's blessing comes to the genuine disciple, the one who follows Jesus into a life of humble service. Of all the marks of discipleship Jesus could have highlighted, He highlighted a willingness to pick up a towel and get our hands dirty. Few things we do make the gospel more beautiful and compelling than when somebody sees Christians with dirty towels and clean feet. Dirty towels and clean feet make the gospel clear. Everyday people doing everyday things to serve one another. This is what humble service looks like. This is what following Jesus looks like. As Julia comes this morning to play, just a moment of reflection as I move from the pulpit to the table. Maybe you would ask the Lord in the quietness of this moment, Lord, where are you calling me to die to self? Where are you calling me to get low, to serve? Where's my towel, Lord, that you'd have me to wear? Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people of the towel. We want our lives to be marked with towel service on Jesus' terms, Lord. In a way that the world looks on from the outside and sees what great love we have for one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.